Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. The popular PBS show Finding Your Roots with Dr. Henry Louis Gates just concluded its seventh season. The finale featured comedians Louis Black and Roy Wood Jr., Guests on the show discover surprising stories about their heritage, family histories that illustrate the power and diversity of human experience. Later this hour, we'll talk with Sabin Streeter, the Emmy Award-winning senior producer and director of Finding Your Roots. First, a new online exhibition at the Atlanta Contemporary, Out Loud, demonstrates the artist as activist. Joining us now via Zoom are the artist Jiha Moon and Atlanta Contemporary Executive Director Veronica Kessenick. Welcome back to City Lights. Hi. Thank you, Lois. This exhibition honors the lives of those who were tragically killed in a series of targeted attacks against Asian-owned businesses in Atlanta on March 16th. Jiha, amid the shock and the pain that no doubt you felt immediately following these shootings, how were you able to create the idea for this show? Oh, thank you for asking. When I found out about the incident, the pain was tremendous. And it took a while for me to digest and sort of understand what is going on. And I just felt like as an artist, I needed to play some part. I feel the sense of responsibility about what we can do to help as an artist. Because I was thinking about uh, all this incident Outside of, you know, Atlanta, New York, and San Francisco, I hear about the news, and I felt bad, but I still really didn't feel, you know, close. But when it really hit in Atlanta, I felt really devastated. So mm. days of pain, I felt really bad, but then I just feel like, you know, maybe I could do something about it, because uh, here is the, there are so many Asian people living this a great city of Atlanta, 
And I reached out, my fellow artists, and I also reached out Veronica that if we could do something about this, you know, using platform of Atlanta Contemporary Arts Center website and created an online exhibition and sort of uh, showcase Asian American artists exist. And we can also bring this uh, awareness of like hate crime. And we also exist and we could showcase our work to help this incident. More broadly, the exhibition focuses on the shared experiences of Asian women and what it means to be Asian. What message do you hope to send through the works you've curated, Jiha? As Asian female representation is not as prominent in this country, and we often uh, recognize as weaker group of people rather than uh, proactive and, you know, express ourselves. And the term yellow fever probably came from there. And people see Asian women as very submissive. I wanted to focus on the strength of Asian women we have in the community. And we are often not very visible, but in our community here in Atlanta, and more so around the country, there are so many prominent and strong women artists, and they're not very well represented. And as a fellow artist, I know a lot of these artists as well, and I know them as a human being. Often they're mothers and teachers, educators, and very strong uh, women artists, and I really admire them. And I want America to sort of give a opportunity to look at them again and then recognize their work. Oftentimes, these artists work, you know, you don't really see the Asianness right away, just as um, Asian Americans, you know, they're American as well. So take a look at these artists' work and then try to see how they assimilate, what's the differences, what's the similarity, and we are also part of America. So these visual art online form. And I think it's amazing because you can view the exhibition anywhere with your cell phone, your laptop, uh, computer or tablet. You see these people's work and see what's Americans and what's Asian, how they're assimilated and beautifully represent part of American people. Would you talk about the significance of the title Out Loud? Yes, I was kind of counteractive in a way that like we are very submissive and quiet. And I wanted to choose a title that sort of show the strength and then bring the visibility more. So I choose the title out loud. Veronica, the exhibition opened less than two months after the tragedy. How did you and Jiha bring together this show so quickly? Well, when Jiha calls, you answer because she's such a thoughtful artist and has just had such an important contribution, not only to the Atlanta art scene, but to Atlanta contemporary. And I'm honored and privileged to call not only Jiha an alumni of Atlanta Contemporary's Studio Artist Program, but I also think a friend. And she came to us with this incredible idea. And one of the realities of Atlanta Contemporary, and and I think also in navigating through COVID-19 and the last year is the you know, overused term now of pivoting. 
But we have always been an organization that reacts and engages in risky, thoughtful work. And so Jiha came with this incredible idea. We said yes. She put together the list and the team made it happen. It really was an honor to be able to do this. In addition to the gorgeous work of Jiha, who are the other artists featured? Uh, we have about uh, 10 artists in this show. Namon Che, who teaches at SCAD in Savannah, Georgia, and Ingyong Chun, who is also a studio artist at Contemporary Art Center in Atlanta. Melissa Huang is a recent graduate from Georgia State University. She just got a job at Georgia Southern, an amazing, amazing artist. Also, Hannah Israel from Columbus, Georgia, who teaches at Columbus State University. And uh, Sonia Young James, who is an alumni of Contemporary Arts and Artists. And Sue Kim, who is also Lexus Award recipient, the new artist that I actually haven't met. We only virtually uh, introduce each other. She uses rice as a material to create work. She's in it. And then there's two artists Ka Kyung Lee and Mie Ying, I knew I tremendously admired their work from New York and their Korean immigrant artists in a show. And Nuni Lee from Atlanta, who teaches at Georgia State, a part-time professor, she's also in the show. I read that proceeds from this exhibition and art sale will go to the Asian American Advancing Justice Organization. In Kyung Chung's painting... A Night Feeling Guilty is one of those works available for purchase. Would you tell us why you selected that painting for this show? Ingyong Chun's work usually honors the community and her life story and her family, and so much more about being a mother who is supporting the family. And her work throughout entire her career is based on the energy of mother could have and that work also um, represent that and I feel like her work is amazingly support women artists as well and I think that painting she uh, we picked together is uh, one of those work. You have a piece in the exhibition called Jeannie Peony the flower How would you describe this artwork? My work in general is put together Eastern and Western, also uh, honoring traditional elements, also popular culture. And I have always uh, twisted uh, sort of fun elements in my work. And I was uh, looking at this Korean heritage of vessels and I wanted to sort of translate the American sort of like Disney version of Genie. So I titled it that way. And there's iconographies that uh, people kind of see in both ways. Like, for example, banana is, um, I'm not quite want to say that it's a, a derogatory terms, but I've heard younger generation of Asian uh, Korean community, you know, call themselves banana, like white inside and yellow outside. And that's sort of I featured in the piece, but also it's an iconography from Velvet Underground, uh, the album cover that Andy Warhol designed. So there's a lot of double play in the imagery. So I thought that was really interesting, fun piece that when you look at it, you can translate it in either ways. Violence against people of Asian descent has 
increased exponentially in the past year. I read anti-Asian hate crimes went up nearly 150 percent in 2020. Jiha, you spoke a little bit about how these acts of violence changed your life in Atlanta. How do you hope to reclaim your rightful space in the Atlanta community and the world through this exhibition and through your art? I see this is a long way of working together and me just working by myself or even community is not going to do much. I think that it's going to take a long time that everybody somehow has to help and also educate each other and talk about it. For me, being an Asian, I mean, I grew up in Korea. I came here in 1999. My parents growing up always tell me to be modest and support other people. You have to be humble. And I still honor that tradition of Korean education and culture. But sometimes I feel like we have to speak out loud and support. And that I learned from being part of American culture. And it's really helpful. For me, the balance between my education in Korea and being in America, both really extremely helpful. And not one is more important than over the other. But in this community, I feel that Asian immigrants and also people need to speak up their mind and also try to help each other and actively help other people to understand, you know, how our uh, right need to be activated in this country. I think that's really important, not just going to Asian grocery store or restaurant, enjoy their food and, you know, love that culture. But if you don't love the people, what is the point? So I just feel that, you know, just as much as you enjoy like Asian culture, you have to support the people in it because people are the cultures. So I would love to continue my part to support my community and help people aware we are also part of American country too. And Veronica, what role do you hope Atlanta Contemporary can play through this exhibition to help the Asian community heal from the pain of the last year? Well, I hope that we can be just one part in bringing individuals and peoples together to celebrate and amplify the incredible work and talent of these women artists that are living in the Atlanta community and throughout the country. We are in this opportunity really a vehicle and an online place to gather, convene, you know, maybe even use a historical word from our own past, a nexus to gather people together virtually to celebrate and honor and amplify these works, as well as we're the platform for people to acquire them, to pay for them, to support donations and funds that will directly make an investment in the community and in the families of these individuals whose lives were so tragically taken from them. Veronica Kastanek. Jiha Moon, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lois. Veronica Kessenek 
the executive director of the Atlantic Contemporary, and artist Ji Ha Moon, curator of the virtual exhibition Out Loud. The show is on view through August 1st. You can find out more about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Dr. Henry Louis Gates may be America's favorite public intellectual. In addition to his scholarly work as a Harvard University professor, Dr. Gates imparts warmth and ease with his curiosity, and those qualities are central to his role as host of the PBS series Finding Your Roots. Sabin Streeter is the showrunner, senior producer, and director of Finding Your Roots. Mr. Streeter is an Emmy Award-winning producer and director with an extraordinary body of work. He joins us now via Zoom. Sabin Streeter, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. You collaborated with Henry Louis Gates on this series, The African Americans, in 2013. Did that work lead to finding your roots? Well, yeah, sort of. So Skip and I had, had met when he was first doing uh, African American Lives, which was really the precursor show to Finding Your Roots, where he looked at, at uh, African American history through the lens of genealogy. And uh, I was working for a little documentary company. Skip was looking for a company to help him get this thing off the ground. And the company I was with ended up doing that. I was not that involved in that show. I was sort of involved in the beginning of it. And some of the details, a friend of mine ran it for Skip, or several friends of mine. And But I got to know him then. And then when he was doing that series, Many Rivers to Cross, uh, the African-Americans, it was just a happy coincidence that we sort of came back together and I did that for him. And then since then, I've (laughs) since then we've kind of been joined at the hip. um, And I I started doing Finding Your Roots. I directed one episode that first season and then sort of, you know, became more senior the second season. And by the third season, it was the main thing I was doing. And, you know, it, it, it was just a happy kind of confluence of my schedule, Skip's schedule, and the fact that this show became successful. It's in its eighth season now, and that's just very unusual that you're able to have. I've never had that before, and, and, and very few people do, where you have that kind of continuity in documentary television, where you can have a relationship with, with someone like Dr. Gates uh, for all these years and really refine something you're working on together. It's been super rewarding for me. I hope he'd say the same. <laughs> 
How did the idea for the show emerge? Did he pitch it? Did you pitch it? Well, Dr. Gates, or Skip, everyone calls him Skip, so I call him Skip, but Dr. Gates, uh, he, he likes to tell it that, well, first of all, he's had a lifelong interest in genealogy, and he's an incredible guy with an incredible array of interests. But he has been passionate about genealogy, if you read his books, since he was a little kid. He remembers, you know, wanting to put his family tree together as, as a very young person and having you know, sort of fundamental questions about, you know, unspoken of white ancestors and just various things about his family. So he's always been passionate about genealogy. He put together this series uh, for PBS where, they were, where we were going to look at African-American history through the lens of genealogy. You know, Oprah helped him. Quincy Jones helped him get the funding off the ground. Uh, the show was quite successful. It was two seasons, uh, you know, um, but it was a limited series. And I guess, I, I believe the story he tells is there was someone at Coca-Cola who was, um, who was African-American, who was one of, Coca-Cola was one of the sponsors of the show. And he, Skip got an email from a woman saying, you know, you're a racist. Why do, why do you only focus on black people? Why don't you do people of all races? And this struck a chord with Skip and he went to Coca-Cola and said, you know, could I do a series, you know, would there be funding for a series of all races? And I guess Coca-Cola said, sure, <laughs> you know, we sell as much Coke to white people as black people. Um, <laughs> uh, now, whether that story is totally true, totally apocryphal, I mean, it, it, to some extent, the the series has kind of bled one in, into another. The success of African-American lives was significant. Skip has been, you know, prominent public intellectual, probably we could have done whatever we wanted to. But I would say that email, you know, we talked about this fair amount. The email he got from just an anonymous viewer, I mean, I'm sure she attached a name to her email, but I, I, I don't know it, saying, you know, in quite stark language that Skip, you know, that Skip was, was, should be looking at all races and not just African-Americans, it did strike a chord with him. And he very much took that to heart, even though it was quite critical. Um, we, we get a lot of emails, as I'm sure you do, and, you know, some of them are praiseful, but the bulk of them are have issues. <laughs> oh, yes. Public broadcasting viewers and listeners are nothing if not opinionated. Yes. And we read them, and, and some of them really strike a chord, and that, you know, even if their tone is a bit, it's a bit confrontational. Skip is probably the least racist person I know, but that one... Um, definitely struck a chord with them and, and had an influence. Well, uh, the Coca-Cola connection will have special meaning for our listeners and viewers. So thank you for sharing that. Today. Again, I, I'm not 100% sure it's true, but it's a story that we like to tell. Your work as editor of GIG, an oral history of the contemporary workplace, recalls the approach of Studs Terkel with his working interviews of everyday people. Finding Your Roots focuses on celebrities, yet I wondered if you find similarities or commonality in what we can learn from the subjects. So that's a great question, and it's actually something I've thought about myself a fair amount. And, you know, one of the main things we do get from our viewers is, why don't you do ordinary people? Why are you doing celebrities? The answer is complicated, but I think, you know, first of all, celebrities are a way to, to draw in a wide audience at the most basic level. Uh, you know, everybody does not have a connection to a given, quote unquote, ordinary person. 
but many, many people have connections to well-known people. So in terms of looking for a wide audience, this made sense and it has worked very well for us. Um, So we hesitate to change the formula, although we have have talked about incorporating quote-unquote ordinary people and we have tried to broaden the range of what a celebrity means. So last season we did three well-known scientists. They were not by any means celebrities. I would say that the challenges of sitting at a table uh, surrounded by bright lights and talking for four hours, as these interviews often are, is something that is celebrities do better at. They are used to that. They are used to conversation of about their lives. They're used to handling uh, questions about their emotions. They're used to expressing emotion. And the show is very much about somebody learning and processing what they're learning and expressing emotion about it. And also expressing interpretations and other things. You know, we look for a wide range of, of well-known people and we do try to broaden that, but we do for a lot of different reasons, look for people who are accustomed to being in the camera and who are well-known. Now that said, I I think that the Studs Terkel approach that really, and it's absolutely true, Gig was a self-acknowledged effort to update Studs Terkel. We talk about that in the introduction of the book and the book's still in print over 20 years later. And it was an amazing thing to work on. And I was, we were given, it was not just me, but uh, me and several other editors were given a nice budget <laughs> uh, and given the chance to spend a, you know over a year interviewing uh, a lot of different people who are not celebrities and i would say that the, the common ground here is that if you if you start to ask a celebrity about their ancestors the degree to which they're a celebrity dissolves pretty quickly and you know you start talking about their childhoods their parents childhoods what they know of their grandparents childhoods and they are no longer promoting their movies. They're no longer promoting their books. They're no longer promoting their ideas and their brands so much as just talking about, you know, they, they are becoming, so to speak, more ordinary. And we are looking for those moments as we edit. And then, of course, as you journey back into someone's family tree, even the most well-known people, you very quickly encounter people who, whose lives are completely undocumented. I mean, that's one of the really fun things about our show is that we're doing really original research about people who have never been mentioned in any form before. You know, there are some exceptions. We did Anderson Cooper a number of years ago and, you know, his ancestry (laughs) traces back to the Vanderbilts and they're much studied. But for the most part, even the most well-known, well-celebrated people, you're two generations back and you're just in total obscurity. And I find that trying and trying to, you know, bring those kinds of lives to life from the bare records we can find, very stimulating and very much the challenge of what we're doing. And it definitely connects to Studs Terkel and to the sort of, for me at least, I mean, uh, the earlier things I did in terms of, you know, the basic questions of what's important in a life. What, What do we want out of our lives? What are we hoping for? What are we getting? Which I think is a lot of what Studs Terkel looked at. And I also, how are we experiencing race in, in real time? How did our ancestors experience it? What can we learn from them? Um, and, and, you know, sometimes you can't learn anything at all, uh, you know, but, but sometimes, you know, when we're lucky, you, there are real moments of connection. How do you select guests for the show? <laughs> we have a giant dartboard and we throw darts against it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of. No, we get, we get our guests from a lot of different ways. So Dr. Gates, you know, before the pandemic, is on the road all the time. He's constantly meeting people. He's constantly meeting people at conferences and events. And, you know, even on, we met Tina, he met Tina Fey on an airplane back from Los Angeles. 
So he, he's a, extremely social, friendly, warm. He's just like he seems on camera. Gets along with everybody. And he loves the show. So he's constantly asking people who he meets to be on the show, which is wonderful for us. In addition, we obviously he obviously has a wish list of people he's never met. And we are sort of curating that wish list with him and constantly writing letters, trying to get in touch with people. We don't, it's public television. We do not pay our guests. We do not do anything more than provide their genealogy. So in some cases, it can be tricky, you know, convincing people to be on the show. Although as, as the show has gained prominence, that's become less so. A lot of times, it's just a matching up schedule. These people are very busy, and so is Dr. Gates. And so it, it, it can be challenging to, even if someone wants to do the show, uh, to get their schedule to line up with Dr. Gates. In some way, there's some people we've been chasing for years in that regard. Also, sometimes we, we can't find anything or we can't find sufficient stuff in their family. We start to go down a, 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 with a guest and we, we can't find enough. And so at that point, we give them our research and we say, we're sorry. Sometimes it takes years. We're going to do somebody this March, I hope, who we've been working on their genealogy for two years. So we, we had hoped to they have a, a DNA mystery we've been trying to solve. So we'd obviously hope to schedule them about two years ago, but, but we couldn't uh, because we couldn't solve the mysteries. And, and then, you know, as the season progresses and as we see who's, who said yes, who we can film, who we can match up, we begin to look at how we'll form episodes and we'll begin to say, Things like, oh, it would be wonderful. It looks like we have a, you know, series this year, a series of really good stories about Irish Americans. Can we find another person with Irish American roots that we could pair with these people? So we'll do a little bit of that. But really, it is a, uh, we invite hundreds of people every season, and it is a attempt to mix and match thematic things that work for us with people's schedules at the most. I mean, I know that doesn't sound very romantic or intellectually stimulating, but it is, it is a full-time job trying to match Dr. Gates with these, with these people and to get, to get a good roster of guests, a diverse roster uh, with different kinds of stories and different kinds of backgrounds. So there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot that goes into it um, and a lot of hoping, <laughs> a lot of time hoping people will say yes. The senior producer of Finding Your Root, Sabin Streeter. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're back with Sabin Streeter, the senior producer of Finding Your Roots, the PBS series with Dr. Henry Louis Gates. Here's what goes into their research. One thing that is good about the show or is attractive about the show to our audiences is that it follows the same process that, you know, you or I would follow if we wanted to do our genealogy. We ask our guests to write down everything they know about their families. And we ask them to, when they say yes, to, you know, give it, to give us a DNA sample. And then we have that tested by multiple companies. And we also ask them if there's anybody in their family you know, uh, who's a family genealogist. And in many cases, there is a, you know, an aunt, a cousin, an uncle, somebody who has more time, who's generally older, who's done the genealogy, who's done some research. And it's crucial to start with the family because, you know, your family knows things that just aren't in the public records, particularly, you know, recent public records are not available. You need the family cooperation. I mean, you could go out and hire a private detective, whatever, whatever. But, but for the most part, you really need the family's cooperation. You need to get back usually to the 
to the great grandparents to when public records become available. And so once we get that, we start to fact, and sometimes family will give us, you know, back to the middle ages, and we start to look at it. And we also start to build our own family trees and see how much the family knows versus, you know, what the family lore is, whether it's true, whether it's false, whether in most cases, family lore is what you would call partly true. It's usually got kernels of truth in it, but often not. Um, so we, we rigorously look at what the, what the family gives us to make sure it's true, but we need it as a starting point. And then from there, we go and, you know, start building our own trees and focusing on stories that we think will be interesting. The DNA we use in two ways. One, we sort of use to fact check the family story. So in other words, we compare their DNA matches to publicly available databases to see if you, you know, if you match up with people that have put their DNA into these databases and put their family trees in. And if your, if your family trees match up with their family trees, sometimes there are subtle differences, but sometimes we'll discover that you are not who you think you are. In other words, your grandparent, it's, it's almost always a father, uh, you know, a, a male line. You know, your grandfather that you thought was your grandfather is not actually biologically related to you. That happens periodically. Once we've had it find out from looking at your DNA, I guess DNA, that their father was not who they thought he was. Oh, my. Uh, yeah. And so if there is something very sensitive, like, for instance, that, we will call the guest before the interview and we will say, look, we found something out that's very personal. We can tell you on camera or we can tell you off camera, you, which, what would you like? We can stop now, we can go forward. We won't tell them what we've learned or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of go a little bit. We obviously, we, we, don't, we don't give them any editorial control, it's PBS, but we do want to, we don't want to bring them on camera and say, hey, your dad's not your dad or your, your living grandmother had an affair. You know, if the people are dead, it's another issue, but you know, anyway, so there are some very sensitive things we uncover and sometimes that stops the process there sometimes. You know, in the case of, of, the, of the person we found out his father was not his biological father, he wanted to be on the show, Joe Madison, a, who's a fantastic radio host, uh, and it was a great episode. He came on as like, he's basically like, I sort of had some suspicions, but like, <laughs> let me hear it. What happened? And, you know, it was a wonderful episode and a wonderful interview, but, you know, certainly by all rights, he, we would have been fine if he said, no, I don't want to air this on public. So it, it is a... It is a multi-step process where the DNA is telling us some things, the paper trail is telling us something else. Always the DNA we privilege. I mean, if, the D, if your DNA is telling you you're not who you think you are, well, that's what we're going with because you know, DNA doesn't lie. But we're really researching almost up until the end of the process because you could research forever. There's some things we, we, we can get 80% of the way there. We'll tell the guests in the interview, you know, we don't know. But then sometimes later, something will come up and we'll contact the guest and, you know, tell them a little more. It doesn't stop with the interview, although, you know, it, it mostly stops. Wow. I have some favorite reveal moments from past shows. Larry David and Bernie Sanders, was <laughs> one, that's one for the ages. That was a very fun show. And I loved the moment when Wanda Sykes told Dr. Gates how disappointed she was that she had no American Indian roots because she was hoping to get some casino money, as she put it. Yes. That's the, well, the, the, uh, you know, most of our African-American guests, that's one of the most common things they come to us with is a family story about Native American roots, that they have a great-grandmother who was 
Native American or, you know, it's very, very, very rarely true. You know, I would say 90% of our African-American guests claim Native American heritage and, you know, in the low, maybe 5% actually have it in very low numbers. And if it's a very tragic part of African-American history, what they're talking about, the high cheekbones, the smooth hair, the, you know, the light skin is not Native American, but is European. And it's, you know, it's, 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 so yes, that, the one, that's a Wanda Sykes is a, it's a very colorful, memorable crystallization of a process that many of our guests go through. That was one we could show on camera. (laughs) 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 But that is a very, it's a very common piece of family lore in black and black families. And it's almost always false. Uh, But Larry David, at least for the day that we spent with him, is exactly, exactly like what he seems to be. Uh, (laughs) Very much as he appeared on camera, very funny, drove himself to the set, no fuss, no hair, no makeup, and just super excited and surprised at everything we showed him. Um, It was very, that was a really memorable day. And Bernie was, you know, uh, is also, I mean, he's just Bernie. It really came through. And, And the fact they were cousins you know, we obviously couldn't have planned that. We, we scheduled both of them because they're big names. And the fact that they're distant DNA cousins was just like gravy for us. And they, they were both so excited by it. And I, I'm not sure if they've actually met since then, but we put them in touch and I know they, they hope to meet. What uh, timing too. You know, the TV gods were smiling on us. <laughs> well, you mentioned the tragic reasons for African-Americans presuming they have Native American background and similarly tragic circumstances with Eastern European Jews and records being destroyed. Well, I guess that could apply to Central European Jews as well. So how complicated is it to arrive at a narrative for someone's roots when you have these missing links? Well, you can only do what you have. And so, you know, depending on your ethnic groups and their different ones that really have, it's very different possibilities. And it's not, you know, Eastern European Jews, basically for many of them, their families, you know, came here well before the Holocaust. But even so, they lived in communities where that were destroyed in the Holocaust and, and destroyed I mean, that part of Europe was just ravaged, first by the Soviets, then by the Nazis, then again by the Soviets. It is a tragic set of interlocking stories. So, you know, for many Eastern European Jews, we, we, we can only find the record that brought them to America. We can't find any, and, and that may or may not name where their family was from in Eastern Europe. It may name the town, it may not name the town. The name of the town may have changed and shifted. A lot of times people just say Russia, <laughs> which is, you know, the case. So, you know, and we will, we will always try, but in a lot of cases, it's just, there's nothing there. You know, Irish families also, you know, the English, you know, went through Ireland and destroyed a lot of their churches and the church records were essential. And then Ireland, for some mysterious reason, decided to pulp its national census in the 1920s to, to get recycled paper. So uh, Ireland self-immolated uh, many of its national records. So in a lot of cases, it's the same thing for our Irish guests. You know, we do what we can and we look at, and in many cases, we, we try to make something of the loss of records. We talk to the guests. This is as far back as we can go. And this is why. And in a lot of cases, it's because your ancestors were really, really mistreated or were coming from some really tough situation. 
And that can be very meaningful just to see the most distant record, whether it's a, an immigration record from the 1880s or the 1870 census for an African-American or an 1820 record that ties your family to Ireland. So we, we look for things that we think will be meaningful stories, but even if we don't have a story, sometimes just the, the records themselves tell a history that's meaningful. Sabin, can you tell us some of the guests who will be featured in this season? We have Don Lemon and Gretchen Carlson in an episode uh, about sort of path-breaking journalists, and that's really interesting. And we have, we're doing John Lithgow, who descends from uh, really early Americans. He has ancestors who came over on the Mayflower, and he's just, a, you know, it's a lovely, warm, fun interview. How does finding your roots exemplify what it means to be American? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, it, it, I mean, that's sort of at the core of what we're doing. We're looking at the fundamental diversity of America, the fact that America was diverse from its beginnings, economically diverse as well as racially diverse and socially diverse, different religions and different practices of all kinds. You know, diversity has been our strength from the start. It continues to be our strength. It's amazing how much our guests want to celebrate our guests of all uh, races, creeds, and colors want to celebrate their diversity and the diversity of America, including recent immigrants. We, 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 you know, we, we do a lot of recent immigrants on the show. You know, everybody comes from somewhere and everybody has a story and everybody, when they get here, has an experience that maps their family background. You know, again, we look at a lot at what, at not only where the people came from and what their lives were like there, but what it was like to be an immigrant to America. And it was not always easy. And a lot of sacrifices were made along the way, even for people we now think of as quote unquote, true Americans today. I mean, you know, if you were Irish, if you were Italian, if you were German uh, and you came here, there were, there were some significant barriers to assimilation. And in the process of assimilation, you gave up a lot, you know, the obvious thing is you gave up your language, but you know, it's tough to leave your home and it takes a special person to pack up everything and go to a totally different country with different cult- with a different culture and different customs, often get stuck fighting in their wars. And of course, for, the, for the, you know, our African-American guests, you know, they, they, their ancestors just didn't even make that decision. They were, you know, and that is a, you know, a, a fundamental part of our diversity as well. People who are brought here against their will, and yet we do come together. So I think that the show looks at the, you know, celebrates the mixing pot, but also looks pretty carefully and repeatedly at the costs. And I think it's, you know, in some way, it's only by looking at the costs and the challenges that our ancestors face that we can appreciate what it is that we built, which is a society that, you know, is truly, truly diverse, even if it's not 100% functioning at the moment. (laughs) You know, it's like, there's no, we're not going back. The genie is not being put in the bottle. We are diverse to our core and we sort of need to accept that. But at the same time, the tensions of diversity, I think we explore pretty heavily. I mean, our current sort of problems that we're having are longstanding. They're not new. Sabin Streeter, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure. We, 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 we love talking about the show. We love the fact that people want to watch the show. It's really, it's an honor to work on. It's really, and it's also, it's a, it's a super honor to work with Dr. Gates, who just has so many ideas and so much passion for this subject and is you know, really just so involved. I mean, everything I'm talking about are these things that he has put in motion and is heavily involved in. And it's just, it's, it's been an eight year run and it's been really, you know, just incredibly rewarding. 
Sabin Streeter is the Emmy Award-winning senior producer and director of Finding Your Roots with Dr. Henry Louis Gates. The season seven finale with comedians Louis Black and Roy Wood Jr. aired earlier this month. You can see all of the episodes on PBS Passport through our TV station, ATL-PBA. Brian Jordan Jr. plays the hilarious character Maurice Webb on Tyler Perry's Sisters. The show follows four black women, their friendships, and the drama that ensues in their daily lives. The third season is set to premiere on June 9th. When we spoke last December, I asked Brian Jordan how the character of Maurice Webb related to his own life. To be honest with you, when I auditioned for the role, I did not feel that I would be able to draw from my own life because Maurice and I are so different. But one thing I believe in just in my training, I like to call myself a method actor, which sounds so cliche, but I believe that in order to make characters connect with real people, they have to be connected to real people. And in my experience of building characters, especially theatrically, I've always been able to draw from myself. With Maurice, I felt like we shared things that all characters share with the actor, and that is the body and, you know, and and the mind and the breath. But with Maurice, I had to really work hard to draw from people that I knew very well and really, really spend time with people who I didn't know very well, but who had, you know, experienced the things that Maurice experienced. Maurice is a drag queen. And before doing the research that I did to develop Maurice, um, I didn't know what a drag queen would even do. I've learned so much through it. And so uh, there's so many people that I can, you know, say that I drew from, but I had a choir director. And I always speak about her because I was in, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church. My grandfather was a pastor. And this choir director is, is, a, is a lady, but she was so flamboyant. Her fashion was always flamboyant. And she had a flamboyant personality and she told it like it was. And when I had to audition for Maurice, it was very quick. Um, and I pulled from her because she was the person who I could hear in those lines. In building Maurice and having the time to develop him more and give him dimension, there are a lot of people that I pulled from. I pulled from the Southern, you know, jargon of my grandmother and, you know, the quick wit of Jennifer Lewis, who's one of my favorite actresses, and, you know, and, and so I pulled from Black women. I just believe that Black women are just the savior to the world. And so, and especially to me. And so when I was making, you know, the choices for Maurice and the physicality and just how he would live and breathe, I wanted to ground him in Black womanhood. Wow. Mm-hmm. What do you think about LGBTQ representation on primetime TV? Do you think it has improved? Oh, 100%. And I believe that there's a lot of <laughs> a lot more room for it to improve, but I do believe that there's something to be said about a character like Maurice living on television and being able to be a star of a television show and not just, you know, a recurring auxiliary to a character. I believe that, you know, Uncle Clifford, there's a show called P-Valley that was also, uh, you know, filmed in Atlanta. And he is the star of that show. And he is an LGBTQIA, you know, feminine presenting character. And I believe that it is beautiful to see. And even though that is not, you know, I am not that, I am so honored to be able to 
represent and be a part of making the change and helping people to be seen who haven't felt seen before. And I think that Maurice represents so many unseen things, LGBTQIA being the most important, but also larger um, Black men on television in a role that is not about a larger Black man. It's just a role that anyone could have played. But Maurice just happens to be larger, you know, and I think that that is also something that should be celebrated. And also I applaud BET, Viacom, and Tyler Perry for making that decision. It just so happens to give me a job, which I'm happy about that too, but I am um, excited about the progression of all different types of diversity, especially LGBTQ. If, if we could just step back for a moment, what you've said has been very insightful. But when you said, I am not that, did you mean you are not gay? Yes. Okay, that's what I thought you meant, but I, I just wanted to be sure. Yeah, well, it's a role, and you draw from everything to inform a role. I'm intrigued with what you're saying about all size bodies being represented. We're so long overdue for that. And especially when you think about, my goodness, the the number of eating disorders, even deaths that were caused over people, and largely women, because they felt they had to conform to be a certain size. I, I read that your biggest hobby right now is fashion for plus-sized men. What can you tell us about how plus-sized men are accommodated in the fashion industry? You know, I, I wish that I could tell you how we were accommodated, but I don't believe that we are. There is not a atelier or higher-end fashion brand that caters to larger men. Um, and we're starting to see it with, you know, the, you know, the more um, ready to wear lifestyle daily brands like Zara and ASOS, those online companies. But I am a person who has always been a lover of fashion and very passionate about it. In my opinion, I feel that even, even larger women get more of a, and I, and I, and I understand the buying power of women. And I understand how, you know, in fashion, women really, really have a heavier, margin when it comes to the purchasing but I do feel that it when I when it's time for me to go to the red carpet or time for me to be you know get the it takes a lot of effort and I have you know every other guy on the show we're very close friends and every other guy on the show you know they're in great shape and it's no problem for them at all and people are always like Brian you look so great and they don't even understand what I have to go through I style myself um and it is probably the most challenging part about being, you know, in the public eye and being a, you know, a figure of influence um, because I'm on a television show. It is something that is very difficult. And so what I'm doing right now is developing pieces and things that I like. And, you know, I have always had a dream of having my own fashion line, but I did not think that it would be catered to a certain genre of man, but that's what I'm focusing on first. I think that there needs to be something that is high quality, that feels great, that looks great on men of all sizes. And I'm not just talking about men who are big and tall because we got the big and tall, but I don't, I can't fit big and tall. Big and tall is too big for me. I'm in a place where 
I'm not big and tall, like I can't wear that, but I also barely can wear the regular sizes. So I just want things that are comfortable for men who are not huge, you know, like six, six, you know what I mean? But men who are also not 160 pounds. So I'm very passionate about developing um, a product that will serve every man. And allow you to feel elegant, stylish. I, oh, I think this is just wonderful. How far along are you in creating your own clothing line? I'm really taking my time with it because I'm working on so many things, but I, I've had things designed for myself. I've developed a tuxedo and it's a tuxedo with shorts. I call it the short cedo. <laughs> <laughs> and I've developed this, um, it's like a silk satin set that looks like pajamas, but it's really like a suit. Like the pants are very well tailored and you know, it, 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 it's something that like, I have very large legs and, you know, but my waist isn't as large as my legs. And so, you know, a lot of football players, I played football, you know, a long time going up through high school and college. And we have a certain build that would, and I still have that football build. And when it comes to like a lineman or a linebacker, you know, someone who is larger, they always have to get their suits made. And, and so I want to be able to serve men like that, men like me who may have to like, like I buy suits all the time and I have to buy a large size to get it taken in to where it can also fit my shoulders and my arms and my waist and my chest. Like it's so many different things. And I just want things to be able to cater to men without them spending thousands of dollars just to wear a suit. Actor Brian Jordan Jr. plays the character of Maurice Webb in Tyler Perry's show, Sisters. The third season will premiere on June 9th. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And today, we welcome our new senior producer, Kim Drobes. I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.